From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today we're talking about sunshine, the figurative kind that powers our democracy, and the literal kind which powers our Earth. Our first guest studies the impact of newspaper op-eds to move public opinion. Our second guest researches the way pollution impacts our ability to harness the sun's energy for the production of electricity. The political scientist and the photovoltaic engineer, that's undisciplined after the news. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Our show always brings together researchers from very different fields, but I'm not sure we've ever had a pairing so different as the one we've set up today. Joining us today is Alex Kopek, whose recent study in the Quarterly Journal of Political Science demonstrated a striking and, I've got to say, surprisingly strong ability for newspaper op-eds to change people's minds. He's a professor at Yale, but he's on the line in Boulder, Colorado, where he's been spending a semester in the nation's happiest city. Hey, Alex. Hey, so great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Also with us today is Ian Marius Peters, whose work and studies have taken him from his native Germany to the National University of Singapore to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and whose recent paper in the journal Energy and Environmental Science demonstrates that air pollution can be a big downer when it comes to solar power. Marius, how are you? Hi, Matthew. I'm very good. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you. First up today, the political scientist. Let's get into the news. Now, everybody is talking about this big bombshell in the New York Times. They published an article written by an anonymous senior White House official that claims members of the administration are concerned about Donald Trump's mental stability. So from within the White House, they are actively working to thwart the president's agenda. As you can imagine, Trump is furious about this today, mostly because he originally thought getting his agenda thwarted meant something totally different. That, of course, is the one and only James Corden responding to the mystery that was on everyone's mind in early September. Who was the anonymous Trump administration official who eviscerated the president in an op-ed in the New York Times? Now, when I read that op-ed, I thought, well... This is all very intriguing, but it's not going to change anyone's mind because we're also locked into our political opinions. But my next guest might have a different idea about that. His latest study demonstrates that op-eds can have a rather significant impact on people's opinions. And he wrote about that in an op-ed for the Washington Post called, and I love this, This Column Will Probably Change Your Mind. Alex Kopik, in the social media post-fact world, the idea that a newspaper op-ed could change someone's mind, well, it's just so quaint. Why did you decide to start researching this subject? Uh, It's so funny that you put it that way. That's exactly right. People think that it's impossible to change someone's mind, that if you (laughs) present somebody with an argument that they will just reject it and move on, and it's not worth arguing with idiots. And that's sort of the state of belief about what happens when people encounter new ideas. So that doesn't sound quite right to me. And it didn't sound quite right to my co-authors either. Um, They both work for the Cato Institute. And part of a lot of what the Cato Institute does is produce pieces that are intended to change people's minds. So their interest in doing this study was, hey, are we wasting our time trying to put our point of view out there? My interest in it is, you know, there's a lot of talk about how people reject evidence with which they disagree, and I want to see if that's true. So the study we did was, let's just 
take some op-eds that had been written by the Cato Institute staff and then just randomly expose or not expose people on the internet to these op-eds. The design is as simple as could possibly be. We are just either showing you or not showing you the op-ed, and then we're comparing people's attitudes afterwards. And what we find is that, like, compared to the control group, the people who see each op-ed agree with the author quite a bit more. Now, the op-eds that we studied all had a very clear direction. That anonymous op-ed that you led the show with um, also has a very clear direction of that uh, Trump is an ineffective president and doesn't have control over the executive branch. I think that people who read the anonymous op-ed believe the claim that Trump is not in control more than they did before. And you didn't just set up a small survey or gather a few undergrads for an experiment. This was a pretty robust study, right? Can you explain how you set that up? Sure. So it's pretty common now in many social scientific fields to get online survey respondents. And because the internet is so vast, it's easy to dip your dipper in and get a huge sample. So we we did our study not with like 40 undergraduates or even 500 people randomly selected. We had 3,500 people on the internet take our survey. We had them take the survey three times. So we got to trace how the persuasive effect of the op-eds decayed or didn't decay over time. One study was among sort of just everyday people on the internet. And then we wanted to say, okay, but the target for the op-eds is not just people, it's like opinion peddlers and influencers in Washington, D.C. So we then got a second sample of about 2,000 like D.C. insiders, and the op-eds were persuasive to even them. When I read about this, I thought, okay, surely these these wonks, these journalists, these congressional staffers, those sorts of folks aren't going to be persuaded by a single column in the newspaper. And I think the effect was smaller, but it was still a significant effect just from one op-ed, right? That's correct. It's always hard to figure out how to talk about the scale of this thing. So we did an exercise where we're trying to predict whether or not you agree with the op-ed author and the sort of everyday people. They were moved by an average of about 10 to 15 percentage points, and the DC insiders were moved by an average of maybe 5 to 10 percentage points. So, like, that's kind of a, that's kind of big. Moving 50% agreement to 55% agreement is pretty big and would be a success by any op-ed writer's standard. And these effects, they were long-lasting, right? That's right. So we measured at... 10 days after people read the op-eds, and again a month later. And what we found really surprised us. The effect was about 50% as strong as it was immediately after 10 days. And so we're like, oh, okay, the persuasive effects decay over time as people forget things and encounter new arguments. But then when we measured again at 30 days, it was still at that same 50% magnitude. So it's sort of like if you plot the decay, it looks like a hockey stick. And I'm like, why doesn't it keep decaying after 10 days? And so we've got some you know, speculation as to why that might be. But it is definitely true that these op-eds have long-lasting persuasive effects. They are small, but nevertheless long-lasting persuasive effects. Part of what this says is that we're maybe not as locked into our political opinions as we often think. I think that that's the right conclusion. It's not 
that I can persuade a Republican to become a Democrat today. But I probably could change your mind a little bit on tax policy. I probably could change your mind a little bit on the state of administrative control in the White House. So these things where it's not, you know, which party are you, but where you stand on issues, people's minds can be changed. What makes me hopeful about this result is that it's not a waste of your time to talk to the other side. So if you have like family members who disagree with you politically, it is not a waste of effort to say, here's why I think that you should change your mind on, you know, name your favorite policy issue. Can a tweet have power like this? Can a meme have power like this? What do you think? I've looked at uh, various kinds of persuasive messages. I've looked at like videos, like a like a like a 30-second video that you might encounter, like as an advertisement. I've looked at op-eds. I've looked at, you know, scientific abstracts. So there's lots of different formats, lots of different delivery mechanisms for this kind of persuasive content. And the differences between the effects are small enough. I can't tell the difference between these different modes. I've done some studies where I have tried to induce people to change their minds on the basis of a tweet. And I could tell you that the effect is smaller than the op-ed, but it's still real. You used op-eds from the New York Times, from the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, USA Today. These are all media organizations that strive to publish fact-based op-eds and have machinery in place to edit, to fact-check, to vet writers. Do you think we'd see a similar effect if the essays you gave to people weren't quite as fact-based, if you took them from sources that widely fabricate information, like the Palmer Report on the left or Infowars on the right? about this. I'm so glad you asked. First of all, in some of my studies, I lie to my subjects. And the, there's no difference in effects whether I tell the truth or I lie to subjects. So on the one hand, it's not the case that a claim needs to be true in order to be persuasive. A second question is, can subjects like sniff out that this is an unreliable source? And subjects can kind of do that, which is a nice thing. However, and here's the big however, when we randomly expose people to, to misinformation, um, now this isn't a study that I've done, this is studies that uh, my colleagues have done, where they randomly expose people to, to lies and misinformation, they believe those lies and misinformation more. Which says from like a social scientific standpoint that guess what, people can't tell the difference necessarily between misinformation and information when it comes to persuasion. They're persuaded by the misinformation. They're also persuaded by corrections to the misinformation. So there's a lot to learn here, but so far it seems like people just kind of encounter information and understand the direction of that information. We're persuadable, and we can use that in good ways or malign ways. That's right. That's Alex Kopik, whose recent study in the Quarterly Journal of Political Science demonstrates that op-eds can have a big effect on people's opinions. Alex, can you stick around to chat with our next guest at the end of the show? I'd be glad to. Next up, the photovoltaic engineer. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone up the dark clouds that had me blind. It's gonna be a That's Johnny Nash's 1972 hit song, I Can See Clearly Now, and if I had to wake up to the same song every day for the rest of my life, that 
would be it. Bright, sunshiny days aren't just good for our moods, though. They're also good for the generation of electricity through solar power. And our next guest's latest study in the journal Energy and Environmental Science demonstrates that air pollution can take a big bite out of power generation. Ian Marius Peters, this study had its genesis, at least in part, in 2013 on a day in Singapore that was not a bright, sunshiny day. Can you tell us a little bit about that day? I, I remember that this, this first instance that I encountered air pollution or a, a haze event. I was actually in an airplane uh, on my way back from Europe flying into Singapore. And there was a big cloud cover over Singapore, which is not unusual. There are a lot of, of thunderstorms and normal rain clouds in Singapore uh, very often. Um, however, when we were getting down with this plane, I, I noticed the first thing that I noticed that I thought was a bit unusual was that these clouds were hanging very low. And the second thing that I noticed that was very unusual was when I got out of that plane, um, there was this burning smell all around me. And um, on the next day in the newspapers, I encountered that what, what this was was in fact not a usual cloud. It was haze. Um, there were a couple of forest fires in Indonesia, and they coincided with, a, with an unusual weather, uh, weather and wind pattern that uh, resulted in this, this smoke that was generated from the burning woods of the, the rainforest in Indonesia to, to not disperse, but to be concentrated in a, in a fan, which resulted in Singapore being covered in this, in this smoke. And the smoke was so severe that uh, when you were out on the street, you couldn't see on the, uh, the building on the other side. So we were working in a photovoltaics research institute in Singapore at that time, and a colleague of mine, we, we got together and we were saying, well, this, this has to have an effect on, on solar cells, right? We, we, we know that it, is, that it affects light in some way because we can't see in the way that we used to, so it should do something on solar cells. However, it is really difficult to measure this effect directly because all of the sensors that you have on the ground are affected by the same kind of smoke that is also reducing the, the um, incidence of, of light on the solar panels. So the question was really how are we going to figure out how much this effect is reducing the output of solar panels. And we were working for quite some time to try and figure out a methodology that allowed us doing this based on the data that we had available in the Institute at that time. We published a couple of papers about this uh, in 2013, between 2013 and 2015, in which we did really detailed investigations about the effects in Singapore. Later on, the study continues in 2016, when the same colleague who, who I had this discussion with in Singapore came back to me and said, look, now I have some data that I took in Delhi. We have a couple of solar installations in Delhi, and we see that they do not perform in the way that we would expect them to perform. My colleagues have been asking me why, and we have been looking at this, and I'm pretty sure this is an effect that has to do with air pollution. There's a lot of air pollution in Delhi, and we have started to measure this about a year ago. We now have a year worth of data about air pollution of solar cell performance in Delhi, and can we do the same type of analysis that we have done in Singapore? And this is how basically this paper started. We, we started to analyze this data, and we're seeing that this was a similar effect to what we had in Singapore. Only in Singapore, the haze event, the forest fires, lasted for about two weeks, whereas in Delhi, the air quality is really, really terrible, much worse than whatever we had during this, this haze period in Singapore throughout the entire year. You ultimately collected data from 16 different cities, and I assume the type of pollution was different from place to place. Did that have a big impact on your model? So the data that we collected from the different cities was air pollution data, um, which was 
convoluted into one number that describes air pollution, and this is not a perfect measure. To, to answer your question, in fact, we don't know that for sure. And you didn't stop just at Delhi. Uh, you began a years-long study into how urban solar installations are impacted by pollution. The surprising answer to me was I read this story is that it's not just yes, but how much? It's it's a really big impact, right? How much of an impact it is depends on how bad the air pollution in your city is. The study that we did for Delhi, we, we picked an example of a particularly bad city. The air quality in, in Delhi is among the worst on the planet. That had a strong effect on the on the result, of course. We've used the result from Delhi to try and estimate how much light we are losing in other cities, and the effects are not nearly as bad as what we've seen in Delhi. Um, I also have to say that the results for the other cities, we have to take them with a grain of salt. It's exactly because of what you said. What the, what the air pollution is made of varies from place to place, and we haven't really been able to take that into account in, in our study. So I think it's probably not entirely wrong, but it's not going to be 100% accurate either. This is a really good starting point for other explorations. Now that we know that this happens in Delhi, people can go and they can do these studies regionally now, right? Yes, and actually that's one of my biggest hopes, that now that we know that this effect is there, that there are going to be more studies in more different locations, and hopefully also with some better measurement setups than the one that we had available to ourselves to reproduce the results that we have done for Delhi, and hopefully also improve them. And this is really important for project planning. Can you explain why? The original motivation for the study in Delhi came off the fact that the installation in Delhi was not performing as it should have been. This is problematic for everyone who is installing a solar panel or for for businesses that install solar panels because they make a plan beforehand where they take into account, well, there should be that and that amount of sunlight and we're producing that, uh, that amount of electricity. That means that we're going to make that and that amount of money out of our installations. Now, if the amount of sunlight is much smaller or significantly smaller than the one that I'm assuming I'd be having, then I'm making less money. And in the end, that can make the difference between uh, my system making a profit or making a loss. We're not just talking about small profits and small losses. There's been some estimates that we're talking about potentially tens of millions of dollars in lost revenue. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, if we're looking into the amount of solar panels that are installed over uh, uh, the world, there are many solar panels around now. There are many solar panels within city limits as well. And it's looking like it's going to be um, a lot more in the future. So if you're losing about 5 to 10 percent of the incoming light because of air pollution, as is what we found for Delhi, then they can put a significant dent into the amount of money that you're making. You've mentioned that you'd like to see other people build on this research. What's the next step for you in developing this area of research? I have been trying to get some data for the forest fires in California and north of it to see whether that has a notable effect on solar cell performance there as well. And an important addition and one thing that I haven't been able to do in this study, which I would like to do in another one, is to look at the effect of soiling that is all the amount of or all the pollution that gets deposited on the front glass of the solar panel. So the stuff that gets onto the glass actually is also interfering with the ability for the solar panels to take in energy and create electricity. Yes, this is a fact that you will be relatively easy to see. It just means that they are getting dirty. 
Marius, this study was published in late August. It got quite a bit of attention. Do you think it will help push more people toward addressing air pollution? I have to say that the effect of air pollution is known uh, predominantly on the health impacts that it has. And this is also, of course, the biggest problem. I hope that the study helps show that health is not the only thing that gets uh, affected by air pollution and that, that it is, in fact, a very multifaceted problem. What I really, really hope for this study is that it creates more awareness of the effects of air pollution and hopefully some action against it. That's Ian Marius Peters, whose study on the impact of air pollution on solar power was published in the journal Energy and Environmental Science. Marius, can you stick around to chat about something just a bit different? Yes. Well then, Marius, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to political scientist Alex Kopik. And Alex, this is photovoltaic engineer Ian Marius Peters. Marius, it's great to meet you. Oh my Hi, God, I was. How I, I loved hearing about your study. I just have so many questions for you. Uh, the measurement problem that you had, because the sensors have the same like, interference that the solar panels do, that's so fascinating. You know, I'm a political scientist and I'm an experimentalist. And so, like, the things that I think about when I hear about your study is, how would I study this? And what I would go do is I would go try to find some policy to go randomly vary. So I want to go randomly vary air pollution to see the effect on solar production. What are the policy interventions that we could use to study this effect? I'm not sure there are policy interventions that you can use to study this effect. I mean, in in fact, I think we've done something that comes close. We've just collected an awful lot of data. We've done measurements um, every couple of minutes over two years, for example, in Delhi, And what that gives you is a lot of data that you can use for statistical analysis. There's another aspect to this that I think is interesting, is that policies can definitely help with it. We've seen that the air quality in cities in Europe or in the United States, for example, has improved as the the result of better policies. Wow. So if I were to make the air quality in Delhi like it is in Boston, like how much money would I make? Sorry, can you say that again? If you were to make the air quality in Delhi as in Boston. As good as it is in Boston where you are. I, mean, oh. I beg your pardon, in Cambridge. How much money would I make out of the, of the solar installation? That's also a very difficult question to answer because one of the things that I had a lot of trouble with was finding literature data or, or any statistics on how many solar panels are actually installed within city limits. I've been looking around really for weeks to find some of that data, and I must say that to this day, I don't know exactly how much that is. If anyone of, of the listeners here on this radio knows that number, I'd be, I'd be very happy to receive that. It is, however, so that Delhi has pretty significant plannings in terms of uh, delivering solar energy to the city. And um, I think that the, the, the savings are, as, as was mentioned before, in the tens of millions of dollars. One thing that struck me while I was talking to Marius was the fact that compelling data without compelling words probably isn't enough to change people's minds. And even the most compelling words without data might not be enough either. Would you both agree with that? And what does that mean moving forward in both of your fields? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, um, the experience that I've made with this is that People are asking for data if you want to convince them for some things. And, I mean, I've, I've been in a lot of discussions about improving solar cells and, and, and how, do we, how, how do we go on with that. 
people do want to see data, pretty much anyone that I talk to wants to see data. But I can also tell from personal experience that if you are not able to present your data in, in a convincing way, you're not going to make much headway with it either. I would agree. One of the great uh, luxuries of being an academic is that you get to be skeptical and, you know, Anyone can have a story. All of those must bring data. And that's, you know, a great luxury. In the political realm, we don't often have that luxury. Opinion pieces, for example, that do and don't have great data don't seem to make a difference about whether they're persuasive or not. So that's a funny fact that the quality of the inference doesn't seem to change how persuasive it is. But man, it's a really nice thing to be able to work in a job where the quality of data and the quality of evidence is the thing by which work is judged. Alex, what do you think? Can we use the power of op-eds to get more people to push for and adopt solar power as a cleaner form of energy? So what we need is we need something for them to be in favor of. We need to find something that governments can do to fix the problem. And then I can guarantee you that we can change public opinion to be in favor of that policy change. Marius, have you ever written an op-ed? I have not so far written an op-ed, but I actually have been involved in writing of, of some of them. And does Alex's research give you maybe some incentive to dive a little further into trying to persuade people? Or does it sound like something you'd still not like to be involved in? It was very encouraging to hear hear what Alex had to say about. It. I mean, I especially like the the part where he was saying it's it's not a waste of time and effort to to talk to people. Um, <laughs> the, the counterpart is that it, it doesn't have to have the well, it it, it can be persuasive without being true. Um, that is that is the worrying bit about it. But I think it's very encouraging what he's been what he's been researching on, and I think um, I might I might give it a try at one point. Unfortunately, gentlemen, we are running out of time. Ian Marius Peters, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you very much, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to be on the program. And Alex Kopik, thank you. Thank you. I had a fantastic time. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.